0: Hello and welcome as you join us on Search for Truth. Thanks for tuning in. Your Bible teacher, Brian Johnston, brings us the seventh talk in this nine-part series where we've been looking at prominent Bible characters from the Old Testament. So far, we've studied Joseph, Daniel, Esther, Gideon, David and Moses. And today, Brian continues with a look at the life and times of Isaiah. So, let's enjoy it together now. Here's Brian. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.
1: As you've said already, we've seen in the Bible that we come across many fence-post turtles, assuming it's okay to refer to people like that as indicating yet another person who knew that his or her responsibility was given to them by God. Our current example is Isaiah. In an essay entitled Meditation in a Toolshed, Christian author C.S. Lewis describes a scene in a darkened shed. The sun was shining brilliantly outside. Yet from the inside, only a small sunbeam could be seen through a crack at the top of the door. Everything was pitch black, except for the slender beam of light, by which he could see flecks of dust floating about. Lewis wrote, I was seeing the beam, but I was not seeing things by it. Then I moved, so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving in the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. Previously, in ministry, Isaiah has been, as it were, looking at the light beam in a darkened room, compared to now being invited by God to step into the beam itself – And see right into heaven, and to see the Lord sitting on heaven's throne. John, in his Gospel, tells us that the glory that Isaiah saw was, in fact, the glory of Christ. The occupant of the throne whom Isaiah saw was the pre incarnate second person of the Trinity. When he had this vision, I'm sure Isaiah said the equivalent of, Wow! Let's read from the top of chapter 6 of Isaiah. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven.' Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people. Isaiah fixed his eyes on the throne-sitter. Whatever happens, that's got to remain our posture too. At least eight times in the Bible book of Revelation, God's not called God, but rather we find him being called Him who sits upon the throne. We learn, along with Isaiah, that whatever happens in life and ministry, that's got to remain our vision, with our eyes on the throne of heaven and him who sits upon it. But let's come back to exactly who it was that Isaiah saw. Remember, we said it was the pre-incarnate Christ whom he saw. You'll probably notice a contrast in the print of your Bible, if you're looking at this with me in Isaiah chapter 6, a contrast between the word Lord written in small letters, for example look in verse 1 and the word LORD in capital letters that you find in verse 3. The reason for that difference is to show the same word we use in English is actually translating two different words in the original Hebrew. LORD with the small letters stands for Adonai or Sovereign Lord and this is the highest possible title for God. LORD written in capitals however is God's personal name, Yahweh, as was first revealed to Moses. So there are two different words for Lord here. One is usually spelt as Lord in small letters, and the other as Lord in capitals. It might be worth at this point referring to the famous hymn fragment in Philippians chapter 2, which declares Jesus as Lord. The name Jesus itself is the Greek form of Joshua or Yahoshua, Literally, salvation is from the Lord, or from Yahweh. And kurios, the Greek word kurios, is often used to translate Adonai, and we find it in our Bibles in the New Testament, written as Lord. So what we have is that the one whose own name incorporates the personal name of God, Jesus, is acknowledged in Philippians chapter 2, As the Sovereign Lord, Adonai. And this is the highest name or title, so that what we have in Philippians chapter 2 corresponds with the situation we've already seen in Isaiah chapter 6. One day to come, all people will have revealed to them what we've already had revealed to us, that the once rejected Jesus of Nazareth is, just as Isaiah said, the Sovereign Lord, or Adonai, the throne-sitter, because Jesus Christ is Lord. We soon learn, as Isaiah did, that evangelism is hard. Surely that's why the vision Isaiah received in chapter 6 comes before his commission, which is from verse 8 onwards in that same chapter. We too have a great commission, which the Lord gave us at the end of Matthew's Gospel, and we, like Isaiah, need to revisit the vision often so as to fulfil the commission, especially when results seem not to be very encouraging. Now, I want us to come to verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah saw him as glorious in holiness, for the six winged angels or seraphim surrounding that heavenly throne were shouting to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy. Why three times, we might ask? Some have seen this as a kind of authentication of the Trinity. But we can't prove the Trinity from this, can we? The most we can say is that this triple proclamation of holy is consistent with the idea of God existing as a trinity, but it's a weak argument to rely on, especially when other arguments from scripture are so strong. So why the three times here then? Because this is how the Hebrew language provides emphasis. While we might embolden or underline in order to emphasise a word, they simply repeated the same word again and again. The message here is God is very, very holy. This was likely a time of great uncertainty in the nation, for the first thing we read in this chapter is that the earthly king over God's people in Jerusalem had died. Was Isaiah seeking a message from God for his people in this time of crisis? Did he enter the precincts of the Jerusalem temple to seek an audience with God? If so, God grants him an answering vision of the heavenly temple. Isaiah was already a preacher when he arrived. If we compare what we read at the beginning of his Bible book of prophecy, that's in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1, we see that this was not the beginning of his prophetic ministry in chapter 6. We can only begin once, but we can have other defining moments in our ministry. Isaiah we presume, came into the precincts of the Jerusalem temple. He couldn't enter in fully since he wasn't a priest. And there, God granted to him this vision that we have in chapter 6, a vision of seeing into the counterpart heavenly temple. Perhaps, as we thought, Isaiah came as a preacher to ask God for a message at this time of national loss and potential instability. If we seek God in times of uncertainty or otherwise... God will allow himself to be found by us. The Bible promises us that. What a thrill for any preacher to encounter God in the preaching, or at least in the preparation for the preaching, and then to be enabled by God's help to communicate something of that to others, as Isaiah has done here. But then, Isaiah goes from a wow that we were thinking about earlier, now to a woe. Woe is me, he says, for I am ruined. In the light of God's dazzling holiness, Isaiah sees now how shabby his own life is. He'd never thought of it like that before, but this is how he reacts to the vision of God's splendour. But answering to his sense of failure is the Lord's victory. Where's the victory in this chapter, you might ask? It's pictured in the fact that the train of the Lord's robe is described as being so long that it filled the whole temple. In those days, the victorious king's robe was extended after each successive victory. The train of the robe of one English king in fairly recent times was long enough to be carried by eight persons. The rank of others in these coronation processions, even to this day, is reflected in how long the train of their robe is. Well, the train of the Lord's robe fills the temple here informing us of the great extent of his victorious majesty. So our Lord Jesus' status as victor is emphasised here in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has been involved in ministry for some time as we've thought, maybe even a long time. But now God's searchlight has shown up something that he'd always covered up and that was lapses in his speech. Now I think it's very likely that contemporaries of Isaiah would have found little fault with his speech. But Isaiah has just seen the Lord, and that's lifted the bar for him. Surely it's another case of those who fain would serve him best are conscious most of sin within. Wonderfully, the Lord showed his mercy towards Isaiah, and Isaiah's failure was swallowed up by the Lord's victory. The same grace that was later fully demonstrated at the cross, is symbolised here in the burning coal from the altar which was brought into contact with Isaiah's sinning lips. Like Isaiah, we need to allow times in God's presence to challenge us and then we need to respond to the Holy Spirit who is drawing our attention to any aspect of our lives and our behaviours which require our attention. Humbled by this awesome vision. Isaiah would have been the very first to acknowledge now that he was not worthy to serve such a Lord. In other words, he would have realised, in our terms for this series, that he too was a turtle on a fence post. Unworthy as he was, he'd been lifted up into the service of God by the Lord himself. Humbled and awed, he now went out from God's presence to fulfil his daunting ministry. Can we do better than to follow his example?
0: Now, I'd like to remind you there's a transcript booklet containing all the talks in this series, so if you'd like one, please tell us and ask for the title Fence Post Turtles. I'm about to give you our contact details too, which are now changed from the usual address, so if you've got pen and paper to hand, please note them down. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN4, 8DY. That's a bit of a mouthful, so I'll repeat it: Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN4 8DY. Now, if you missed any of that, just Google Hayes Press uh, on the Search for Truth site, uh, Churches of God site as well, uh, and you'll uh, find the full address there. Now I also remind you again that many titles of Search for Truth transcript booklets have been turned into eBooks and are available at amazon.co.uk, Kindle, eBooks. Just type Search for Truth series into the search box and you'll find them. And finally, many thanks for the privilege of your company today. Next week we look at another character from the Old Testament of the Bible, so please do join us. Until then, very best wishes from Bible Teacher Brian, Studio Technician David, our singers, and me, John. So goodbye, and may God richly bless you.